effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Looking forward to the day when the gospel comes to fruition and is brought forth and the results of it, some of the results, the way it's pictured, are beautiful. So now we turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that's on page 989 in the Blue Bible. And that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to start reading in just a minute from verse 13. We're going to read all the way to verse 17. But the context of what you're about to read flows out of the first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians 2. When the son of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, wows the world and and gathers the hordes of people around him with all of his wickedness and false signs and wonders. And in verse 10 it says, with all wicked deception that will impact those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And so they believe what is false and they'll be condemned because they will not believe the truth, but they have pleasure and unrighteousness. Paul lays all that out. And then suddenly comes verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits, or some of your translations may say, chose you from the beginning. Either one works. Because God chose you as the first fruits, or from the beginning, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory. You may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And then Paul breaks out in a prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What I read to you from Isaiah 32 and from 2 Thessalonians 2, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for this sermon series. What is the gospel? May we, one and all, delight in the gospel and delight in what it brings more and more because of this series. So help us to do so today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So for those of you who are visiting, we're doing a sermon series. We started at the beginning of January, and we're answering the question, what is the gospel? We've been looking at the content of what the gospel is, and today we kind of move just a little step next door, but it still has to do with the gospel. But we're really looking at that question. We're answering that question. And so there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide, an outline there. I've also given you some scripture references, and I'll just make reference to mention to those, but they're there for you to go further and look up, and then there's some questions for your care groups. Now, most of you know I was in the military 20 years. The last part of my military career, I was a military recruiter. I recruited at first enlisted people, a lot of 17 and 18-year-olds, and then finally started recruiting medical professionals after that. And one of the things that happened as we were being trained in in recruiting is that we were taught to sell the benefits of the Air Force. We were taught to sell the education benefits. We were taught to sell the health care. 
the college accredited technical schools, the training, the retirement, and on and on and on. Now, all that was wonderful, and all those things are good and wonderful, don't get me wrong, and I've experienced many of them. The only one that I haven't experienced so far is being buried at the National Cemetery, but that's coming. The problem for me came in 1991, and it came to a head on national TV. Some of you may vaguely remember the moment. I don't remember the, the woman's name, but she was in the United States Air Force, and Desert Storm was ramping up at this point, and we were starting to ship out units to go to the Middle East, and she was refusing to go. That's what put her on national TV. She refused to go, and as she stated to the public, she goes, I didn't sign up for national defense. I joined the Air Force for education benefits. Now, we can laugh about it, but that's what I was taught to sell. Not the mission, but all the benefits. Oh, and then there is a mission, by the way, but we'll talk about that later. Right? We were taught to sell those things. And it was at that moment, it was one of those aha moments when I was in the Air Force, when I'm watching this and I went, oh my goodness, there's a problem. We have put benefits before the main mission and we've oversold the benefits. So I changed my recruiting approach at that point. And made sure to say, this is the mission, over and over again. I said, and with the mission, by the way, comes these benefits, but this is why you're going in the military. Now, my friends, I bring that up because sometimes I think when we talk about the gospel, what we're actually talking about with several people is we're talking about the benefits of the gospel, the aims of the gospel, the consequences of the gospel, and we often get those things confused with the gospel so that many folks sign the dotted line for the benefits and not for the mission. And I think that may actually be one of the underlying problems in modern Christianity today, at least in the United States. And so, dear friends, we are called through the gospel to several things. Paul mentions them here in verses 13 and 14 that we obtain as consequences of the gospel. They're not necessarily the content of the gospel per se, but they are the intended, some of the intended consequences of the gospel. And having that little fine line of distinction, I know it's a fine line, but I think as we get it, it will help to keep us from misusing misunderstanding or misrepresenting the gospel. And so first off, notice what Paul says as he starts in verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits or from the beginning to be saved. Saved. Now let me begin by talking about that phrase because God chose you. That's the doctrine that we call the doctrine of election. God elected us. God chose us. And that, my friends, is the backstory to the gospel. It's behind the gospel. It's all around the gospel. It belongs with the gospel. And yet what I find very interesting is that none of the inspired gospel sermons in the book of Acts, when they are preaching to people outside of the kingdom and outside of the church, None of the inspired gospel sermons in the book of Acts ever bring up election as part of the message. 
it, it, was, it was what the, the apostles understood. They knew that this was the case, but it was never part of the message. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 17, or Acts 13, after a great, it was Paul's, actual Paul's first gospel sermon that he preaches as a Christian that we have recorded, where it gives us the content, after this rousing sermon that's all about who Jesus is, what he has done, is doing, will do for his people, and it's all according to Scripture, after all that Paul declares, it says when you get down to the end of Acts 13, at verse 48... It says, all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. They understood election, but it was not part of the gospel message. It was not part of the contents. In fact, I'll be so bold as to say that none of the doctrines of grace, what we call the doctrines of grace, are ever mentioned as gospel content, as in the gospel proclamation. You know, the doctrines of grace, tulip, total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Now, my friends, I'm a good Calvinist. I came as a preacher. I came from another sect that hated Calvinism and preached sermons. I preached sermons, whole series against Calvinism. And as they often say, Calvinism is that position that you don't choose, it chooses you. Anyways... I am on board. I am a whole hog. But it's very interesting to me that as you go read the gospel sermons being proclaimed to, to those who are outside of the church and outside of Christ, you never find the doctrines of grace being mentioned. Now, all of those things that I've put up and even adding to that uh, predestination and other things are all true. But when Peter and Paul and Philip and others preached the gospel to those outside of God's kingdom and those outside of God's family. They preached none of those things. They preached, here's who Jesus is, what he has done is doing will do for his people. It's not until those people are converted and brought into the family that they begin to tell them, oh, and by the way, this is around the gospel, this is true all the way across the board, that, that you, know, you couldn't have saved yourself, you, you, it was all by God's election, it was by God's choosing from even before the foundation of the world, so that you're left with, well, how did I get in? And you're left with, oh, it was only by grace alone. So, you, you, for example, I'll just give you an example. Some of you remember there was a season when, at Heritage, you used to read in every service, what passage? Every service. Ephesians 1, 1 through 10. Well, if you take all of those verses and go all the way down in Ephesians 1 to verse 14, you can't miss it. Wrapped around the gospel are the doctrines of grace. God foreknew you before the foundation of the world. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He promised to save you. He already had plans to save you before the foundation of the world. And what do you do? You go, hallelujah! But that's for those inside the family. Not to bring up outside the family. Why don't you bring it outside the family? Have you ever had this discussion where you're trying to talk to a non-Christian or somebody who doesn't believe and you say, well, let's first off talk about the decrees of God. Let's talk about election first. Do you know how far you will get in proclaiming the gospel to them? 
dead in the water. Go to Jesus. Tell them, your God reigns. His name is Jesus. This is, here. this is who he is. What he has done is doing will do for his people. And he is reclaiming and recouping his shipwrecked creation and his train wrecked creatures. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what you do. I think also the reason why the doctrines of grace come up with the gospel in the church, in the New Testament scriptures, the writings, the letters, is because we Christians need never, ever, 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 ever to forget where we came from and what happened to us. That it was not by our own steam, it was not by our curriculum vitae, our resume, and how much we had achieved. It was not by our own spit and vinegar and doubled up fists. But it was clearly, thoroughly, totally, utterly by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And why do we need to be reminded of that? Because we Christians, let's be honest, are downright squirrely. And we get downright self-righteous. The moment begins to slowly cook in your head and you finally go, I'm a really good person. No wonder God chose me. He's happy to have me on his team. Yeah! And we need to hear the gospel that is wrapped with the doctrines of grace as the New Testament letters do it to remind us, no, you didn't get here because you, you were righteous. It was in spite of everything you'd done. Grace alone and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But let's move on. Notice that Paul tells these Christians that they were chosen and they were called through the gospel to be saved. And then you hear that word, and you begin to you have to ask the next question. This got asked in our care group last week, and somebody started answering it, and they did a great job. But saved from what? Glad you asked. Let me answer it. The references are there in your sermon notes. But over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, it's salvation from the wrath of God. We're saved from the wrath of God. It is a justly deserved wrath. It is an anger. It is, an in, it is our injustice stirs up the just wrath of God and we're being saved from it in fact if you look here in 2nd Thessalonians in chapter 1 if you just look at starting about verse 9 they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints etc saved from the wrath of God it is a justified wrath you say well preacher how come is it well how is it justified well just take your eyeballs back up here in chapter 2 just start looking at verses 10 and following. Those who are perishing, why are they perishing? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They'd rather believe the false. They'd rather uh, not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, the wrath of God is a result of our self-inflicted self-destruction. Saved from that. And so God's good creation has been shipwrecked. And God's good creatures, he called us very good. Actually, in Genesis 1, God's good creatures are train wrecked. And it's all by human ingenuity, human insurgency, and human inanity, stupidity. 
I mean, we're like the highly educated and credentialed PhD who decides he's going to go trim that nasty tree limb off of his tree. It's a big old tree limb. And so he puts his ladder up there. He climbs up to the tree and he turns around and he faces the tree. You know where I'm going with this, right? Pulls out his saw, which he got from Neil Roberts, by the way. Pulls out his saw and he starts sawing, facing the tree. Is this going to end well? So his wife is down here saying, honey, unless you turn around, this is not going to end well. And what does he say? Shut up. I've got degrees. I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. You know where he's going, right? That's you and me. That human ingenuity, that human insurgency, that human inanity, creation of shipwrecked creatures or train wrecks. That's us, and he's saving us from ourselves. The gospel announces our God reigns, and he is reclaiming and recouping his creation and his creatures through this descendant of Abraham, this descendant of David, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, our Lord. And so we are being delivered from our self-destructive actions and decisions and directions, much in the same way as what happened at the end of November last year. November last year, 2023. You all remember that far back? On the 12th of November, 41 workers were trapped in a tunnel, in India's Uttarakhand Tunnel. They were trying to dig a tunnel. They were, they were commissioned to dig a tunnel through the mountains, to take this highway through the mountains. So one end of the tunnel is open, the other one hasn't been burrowed through yet, right? You get what I'm saying? So they're in there digging away, and these 41 workers all of a sudden get trapped because there's a cave-in over here at the entrance. Now what can those workers do at this point with 1,000-pound rocks blocking their way out and all of that, right? So it collapses there. Contact is made with them quickly, but nobody can get through to them. There was nothing they could do to save themselves. What could they do, for goodness sake? You ever been in a cave? You, know, you ever imagine what it would be like if that cave caved in? You're, you're toast, baby. <laughs> and there they were with dwindling water supplies, air getting bad because the carbon dioxide or monoxide part or whatever it is, whichever one of those carbons it is, is increasing, right? Water's getting bad and thinning out. There's no, not enough food to last you. And they're in there for over two weeks. The rescue had to come from where? Outside, and it actually literally was, a little higher up. The rescue had to come from outside and higher up. And so on the 28th of November, a three-foot wide steel pipe had been worked all the way through that rubble until finally it broke through to the trapped workers. And how were they saved then? The rescuers came in through the tunnels, through the tunnel, and they got in there, and by, after two and a half weeks, all these workers were emaciated and just, they didn't have any strength, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. But they were saved because the rescuers came in, picked them up, put them on stretchers, and brought them back out. You get it? It's very much like that. What did those, res what did those workers do when rescue came? What could they do to affect their rescue? Nothing other than trust the rescuers. 
We are called by the gospel to repent and believe in the gospel. To believe that God is reclaiming and recouping us through Jesus Christ. To trust the rescuer. And so we're not just saved from the wrath of God. We're saved to enjoy life with God. To be rescued and live out that rescue. And so Paul goes on and talks about being sanctified. If you're looking there at verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctified through sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctified, by the way, is a kind of a high dollar word for being holier, being made holy. Now notice that Paul is not giving us some systematic theology here per se. If he was, then sanctification by the Spirit, being made holy by the Holy Spirit, actually comes after believing and regeneration or regeneration and believing, etc. But it's very fitting for it to be right here because it's one of the aims. One of the goals, one of the consequences of the gospel. I know it is because over in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 through 8, Paul says, do the will of God and this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. It's a pretty direct statement. Here's the will of God. Pastor, what's God's will for me? Your sanctification. I mean, that's how pointed that is. Oh, yes, yeah, sanctification, being holier, is actually an intentional aim and a consequence of the gospel. I mean, if the gospel is the announcement that your God reigns, and his name is Jesus, and here's who he is, and what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people, and he is recouping and reclaiming his shipwrecked creation and his train wrecked creatures then sanctification being more holy becoming holier like Jesus is holy is where the glad tidings lead us it's part of being recouped and reclaimed and it doesn't mean that we're already here in our day in and day out of existence holy as can be or even sometimes even holier than we were but it's where we're going because it's God's will for you it's where we will be. It's therefore very much to do with the way we are today. Sanctification is the, the Holy Spirit working in us because sanctification itself is even by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we call this progressive sanctification, the active increasing growth and in holiness. Let me put it to you in another way. It's like one of Caitlin's or Diaphrasella's patients who's, who's in the ICU, and while she is, while the patient is in the ICU, all of a sudden it flatlines. I don't know what Caitlin, they call that the code blue at that point, right? Code blue, code blue. And so they flatline. And what's Caitlin and Di, what's their whole mission as they run in the ICU? Save yourself! Right? Is that what they're going to say? No, they jump in there and all the rib breaking it's going to take to resuscitate and the little defibrillators you know all that stuff whatever but then the goal is not just restoring that person to some consciousness and breathing but it's you want them to grow and be if possible recovered in some way and so at some point die signs the sheet to send her patient or Kaylin signs the sheet to send their patient to 
Rehab. And what's the goal of rehab? To gain strength, get stronger, become ambulatory, mobile, maybe a little bit more self-resilient and so forth, right? That's what sanctification is. It's the rehab. Okay, that really fell flat. It's the rehab. Yay! That's the idea. And yet, it's just like the 41 workers being hauled out of that tunnel. Those rescuers didn't rescue them just to leave them there in broad daylight and to figure it all out on their own. Oh, you're dehydrated and you haven't eaten for two weeks? Do it yourself, baby. No, they were there with them to help restore them to life. That sanctification is part of that recouping. It's part of the goal of all of that. And yet, let's just be honest, that that's probably one of the most painful benefits of the gospel is sanctification. One of the most heartbreaking consequences of the gospel. Because it's hard to, tra- to change habits, thoughts, the stuff that comes out of your mouth. Hard to change those things. So it becomes painful. It's like the pneumonia patient doing that little funny, whatever that little plastic thing is they have to blow into or suck into, whatever it is with the bubble that goes up, the big ball that goes up, to try to get their lungs working, and it hurts. I've sat with some before, and they just, oh, I can't do that. Well, you've got to. Because it's part of life, living, being actually alive. And so sanctification is a vital fruit of the gospel. And so Paul says here we're saved, this is part of the gospel or part of the consequence of the gospel, saved and sanctified. And then he goes on to talk about belief in the truth. And in 2 Chronicles 2, or 2 Thessalonians 2, sorry, I just had a mind lapse the last year. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul has a very specific set of things in mind when he's talking about that, that we're called through the gospel to belief in the truth. Because it's in sharp, saving, sanctifying contrast to everything you read back up in verses 10, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Where our normal habit is to believe what is false. To not believe the truth because we have, we, 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 we have pleasure and unrighteousness and so forth. And so part of the result of the gospel is that we come to believe in the truth. Belief. What does that look like? Well... You know, Anna, my wife, loves to watch this little set of shows. She didn't watch them very often, but it's about a Finnish competition, F-I-N-N-I-S-H, right? The land of Finland, right? It's a competition. It's a husband and wife race where the husband carries the wife on his back for the whole way of an obstacle course that is about 835 feet. If you want to know what that, how big that is, three football fields long. And it's down in mud puddles and back up over fences and up the hill and back down. He's carrying his wife, but he's not just carrying his wife on his back. Oh, no. She's upside down on his back. Her legs are up here, not her seat. Her legs are up here. He's got to carry her. Her head, therefore, is down here, right behind him. And he has to run that whole race. And so, where he goes, she goes. And she wins when he wins. 
It's comical to watch the whole race. It's a hoot. And yet the one who sticks, the one thing that sticks out is that the wife who's on her husband back, husband's back, she may be cheering her husband, or she may be complaining. She may be pleading with her husband. She may be closing her eyes. I can't watch. She may be holding her nose, especially when they go down into the mud pits. She may be screaming. And I've watched several of those shows. I've watched the women do all of those things all at once sometimes. And yet she gets to the finish line. Trusting her husband. We're called to the gospel to believe the truth. Your God reigns. His name is Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done, is doing, will do for his people. He's reclaiming, recouping his shipwrecked creation and his trainwrecked creatures. Repent and believe the gospel. And so lastly, Paul says here, he adds here to the consequences and the fruit and the outwork of the gospel is being glorified. And that's the last part of verse, that's in verse 14. So this, to this he called you through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, that's amazing news. Here's the reason you're saved. Here's the reason the gospel comes and the, the end result is so that you will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that look like? I don't know. Not completely. But part of it is the one who came forth from the grave, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, who is no longer subject to misery or mortality, who has been transformed gloriously and sits at the Father's right hand. We're obtaining His glory. Some of that means we too will experience what He experienced. Rising from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails and hair, no longer subject to misery or mortality. Endlessly. Well, what good is that? Great question. The end goal is to be with Jesus, transformed with Jesus, completely made into what we were meant to be. From day one, Genesis 1, sons and daughters of God, with God forever, unendingly, never again, sin, rupturing that relationship. And to revel, to blossom endlessly in the love of the fellowship and fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Where we will really enjoy life and liberty and genuine happiness in the embrace of God. That's the glory of Jesus. That we are called through the gospel to obtain. And how do we obtain it? By grace alone. Where? In Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. You see, eternal life is not about forever life. Anybody ever read The Lord of the Rings? You know what I'm talking about? You remember Golem? The ring gave him power to live a long life. And that was not good. In fact, as somebody described it, it was like being butter, a thin piece of butter spread too thin on, a, on toast, right? He was just spread thin. He just became a shade almost, a shadow. Forever life, the way you are, the way I am, oh, good God have mercy. That's not a good thing. Eternal life 
is the glory of Jesus. Totally transformed and able to enjoy forever, ever life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is eternal life. And that's part of that glory and all that it means for us physically. And you can go through the passages I've given you in the sermon notes to see some of the scriptures that talk about it. I've even read them. And part of it, one of them was in the call to worship. That's where we're headed. Hallelujah. And it's not by our own spit and vinegar. It's not by our own steam. It's not by our own righteousness. It's not by our own abilities. It's by grace alone. In Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. So, my friends, we're saved. We're saved from what? From the well-deserved wrath of God to, the, to fellowship with God, to the increasingly flourishing and the health of Jesus' own holiness, to believing the truth, no longer believing wicked deceptions and strong delusions, having pleasure and unrighteousness, but instead being glorified with Jesus boundlessly. That's the cons- those are the consequences or some of the consequences and the, the benefits of the gospel and its aim. And it's not only what we want for ourselves, but it's what we want for our kids. And it's what we want for our grandkids. And it's what we want for our spouses and our parents and grandparents, and our neighbors. And the only way to get there is for them to repent and believe the gospel. All right, kids, help us out now, because the parents have slept since last week, and they've forgotten all of this. Okay, kids, get up. Come on, come on, come on. It just feels like family. Ah, yes. So what do we do with the gospel? First thing, what do we do with the gospel? receive the gospel. Come on, do the hand motions. Here we go. First thing we do with the gospel, we receive the gospel. Then what do we do with the gospel? We own the gospel. Then what do we do with the gospel? We pass it on. Very good. Let's do it one more time. Okay. You're all warmed up now. What do we do with the gospel? We receive the gospel. We own the gospel. We pass on the gospel. Thank you so much. That's what we want to do. Yeah, yeah, do that. Clap for him. Good job. So this is a moment for some of you, maybe. You've put Jesus off so long. Oh, pastor, I'm all about doing, I'm all about being as good as I can be. I'll work my way there. I'll, I'll make, no, no, no. Didn't you hear anything I said? He had to do it all for you. There's no, he went 90% of the way, you do the 10%. There's none of that. He had to go the whole way. You're in the tunnel. There's a cave-in. You're dead. You're dying. You're in the ICU with Caitlin or with Di. You're dead. You're flatlined. What can you do? Nothing. And he comes and resuscitates you. Just embrace him. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let this be the day when you do that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what wonderful news. And so I pray for all of us here. That we who've come to faith, that by your grace have come to believe in you and repent. 
and have trusted in your, you and our great rescue. I pray that, that you, our Lord Jesus Christ, yourself, and O oh God, our Father, you who have loved us and you who have given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, that you would come to each of us this very day and comfort our hearts and do establish them in every good work and word. Lord, there are some in our hearts that weigh heavy on us. They're kids, they're our kids, or our grandkids. Or it's mom, or it's dad, or it's Aunt Millie, or whoever. Who doesn't? Doesn't know you, doesn't know what it is to have real life, liberty, and happiness, which can only be found in Jesus. We pray for them. Dear God, open the eyes of the blind. Take the hard, rock-hard heart and do a heart transplant so they have a heart of flesh. Save them, Lord. Draw them to you. All of this, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.